Uh, well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Baptist Renewal podcast. This is Winston Hotman. I'm on the board of directors here at CBR, and I'm joined by Luke Stamp, also on the board of directors, and a special guest who we'll introduce in just a second. Uh, for those of you who don't know us, CBR is a group of Orthodox Evangelical Baptists committed to retrieving the great tradition for the renewal of Baptist faith and practice. If you enjoy what you hear today, we invite you to check out our website at centerforbaptistrenewal.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and also don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. So today's show is part of our Baptist Classics Reading Challenge, and today we're discussing the 18th century Baptist theologian Andrew Fuller. Uh, you'll notice if you've been following in the challenge that we are skipping Anne Dutton. We will get back to her in a future episode, so don't worry about that. To help us discuss today's subject, we're joined today by Dr. Nathan Finn, uh, who I'm sure needs no introduction, but I'm going to give one anyway, and also allow him to tell us a little bit about himself if he has anything he wants to share. Uh, Dr. Finn currently serves as the provost of North Greenville University in Tigerville, South Carolina. He earned his Bachelor of Arts from Bruton Parker College, his Master of Divinity and PhD from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's previously served in faculty and administrative roles at Southeastern, as well as Union University, and he's taught extensively, especially in the areas of leadership, theology, and church history. Uh, more recently, he was elected as the recording secretary of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he's married to Leah and is the father of, I'm not sure how many, Finlings? Four. Four, four Finlings. Um, and most importantly, he is an avid supporter of the greatest baseball team in the history of the game. So, oh, that was great. <laughs> yes. Especially with Luke on the line. Absolutely. That was, that was such a blessing. Absolutely. No, no, Luke. Uh, for those who are just listening on audio, Luke is holding up an L.A. Dodgers cup for all of us to see, glorying in his shame. But, but I do want to say as a, a lifelong Braves fan. Dr. Stamps, we are all mourning the loss of the great Ben Scully. None better. The greatest ever to sit behind the mic. Amen. All right. So, Dr. Finn, is there anything else you want to share with us about yourself? Maybe uh, a lot of people are wondering, what is the recording secretary of the SPC? <laughs> so, um... Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Now, you shared all the important stuff. Uh, the recording secretary of the Southern Baptist Convention is the individual who is responsible for the final version of what goes out with the uh, book of reports uh, that everybody sees, as well as the annual uh, that records the information from the convention. So it dates back to the 19th century, where it was literally the person in the room taking the notes. The recording secretary is still in the room uh, taking the notes, but uh, in many ways today, much of that work is done by the executive committee's professional staff, and the recording secretary is the one who double checks everything and sort of gives it the final edit. And, and the way that I've enjoyed thinking about this the past few months is uh, the recording secretary is the person who helps Southern Baptists tell their story mm. to each other and to the rest of the world year by year. And so I very much see it as kind of an extension of uh, my interest in Baptist history and thought. Very nice. Well, we're, we're grateful for your leadership in that capacity, but in a lot of different capacities in the uh, denomination and in Christian higher education. And so we're thankful that you're joining us today. 
Um, really, the first thing to talk about in terms of Andrew Fuller is just an introduction to his life for those who are unfamiliar with him. So you can, can you start us off by just sharing his life and ministry and legacy? So Andrew Fuller was a, was a brawler. So he was just this sort of young, buff, muscular, stout, rough around the edges uh, sort of guy who grows up in the, uh, the middle years of the 1700s, along the way, uh, becomes a Christian. But his home church, like many churches in the particular Baptist tradition in the mid-1700s, was influenced by a type of high Calvinism, or what we more pejoratively call hyper-Calvinism sometimes. Uh, Andrew Fuller, as a young believer, is very... Uh, put out by the fact, uh, not originally with hyper-Calvinism, but with the uh, relationship of antinomianism with high Calvinism. He's very put out by the fact that there's a deacon in the church uh, who is in some ways living inconsistent with his profession, and there's not really anybody in the church who's very concerned about that. There's kind of a fatalistic view of uh, this man and his sin, and that really sets him on the trajectory uh, as an early Christian of not just becoming a pastor, that pastoral calls happening around the same time, uh, but of moving towards more consistently evangelical views, uh, not just about salvation, uh, but even about sanctification and how to think about the Christian life. And so what Fuller is known for is primarily uh, the debate with the high Calvinists, but the reality is Uh, He's sort of the leading Baptist pastor theologian of his era, which we're going to roughly date from about 1775 to 1815. And uh, and during that time period, he engages in nearly every theological debate that's happening among Baptists and the rest of the evangelical world, at least in Great Britain at that time. And, And so he's not a systematic theologian. Uh, I I think of him in some ways almost like our Martin Luther, uh, that occasional theologian with a little bit of feistiness uh, who just sees all these different things happening that he's not convinced are biblical, and he's constantly saying enough is enough, and here's the reason why enough is enough. And then he takes us to uh, the scriptures, and he looks at those different things. And so uh, we think of him as a polemical pastor theologian and one of the most important pastor theologians in the history of the Baptist tradition. One of the things I like to do is uh, make lists and rankings. So <laughs> I'm just curious, where where, where do you put uh, Fuller? Um, what, what is Fuller's place among the great Baptist theologians? I mean, I, I think I, there's a a few I, I would throw out there, but what, what do you what do you think of Fuller's theological legacy? In that in that kind of yeah yeah you know I get it that you like lists I don't love lists but I'll I'll play this game so um so in some ways this is hard to answer because he's not writing for an academic audience he's not writing at a time where Baptists are conceiving of anything like a professional Baptist academy uh, and and even to the degree that we have a professional Baptist academy. Uh, we've been a tradition that's been dominated more by pastoral theologians uh, than we have academic theologians. Having said that, his shadow looms really large. So if I'm naming my top five, um, I'm going to put him in the top five. 
and probably the number one in terms of pastor theologians. But if I'm thinking of overall influence among Baptists, even uh, among people who may not realize they've been influenced, I'm probably going to say in no particular order, uh, John Gill, Andrew Fuller, Charles Spurgeon, E.Y. Mullins, and it might be just a top four. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe Billy Graham, if we're talking about influence. Yeah. Maybe not so. a theologian per se, right? But wow. I mean, the influence of Graham is is uh, yeah. hard to... But, you know, I teach a, I teach a occasional doctoral seminar on the history of Baptist theology, and one of the things that we talk about in that seminar, and th- this is not an original insight, I picked this up from James Leo Garrett, is that we just don't have a lot of, again, sort of constructive theologians. Uh, what we've been gifted with are pastor theologians. We've been gifted with exegetical theologians, uh, especially uh, those who would write commentaries and those sorts of studies. And we've been blessed with uh, the sort of theologians who tend to write go-to textbook summaries that even many non-Baptists appreciate. But uh, but there's just, a, it's very recently when we start to say, well, who's the Baptist go-to guy on this issue in Christology? Or who's the Baptist go-to guy on this issue with the Trinity? There's only a little bit of that in our heritage. Uh, and most of it is related to ecclesiology or soteriology. And Fuller actually does fit the bill as one of those key voices with the soteriological debates. Right. Yeah, and I think that's something I, I try to encourage other Baptists not to be ashamed of. You yeah. know, I mean, I think sometimes we have this kind of dogmatic envy, you know, as we look at the Presbyterians or other traditions. Um, and I, I think, you know, we're a new movement, relatively speaking, I guess, in the history of the church, um, 400 years, you know, but still, unless you want to go all the way back to John the Baptist, you know. Nathan, I, 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 I just finished an essay on landmarkism yeah. uh, last week, and so I, I'm wrestling right now with where right, we're yeah. at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, so I, I think being your primary source, right? Right. right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's part of part of the reason why you don't see the kind of, um, you know, kind of the, the more sort of academic, r- rigorous, dogmatic theology among the Baptists is you know, again, re- relatively new movement uh, in the history of the church. Also, there's some sociological reasons, you know, Baptists were kept out of the universities um, during Fuller's time, you know, uh, and were mostly self-taught. Um, but I think there's also something that is endemic to the Baptist vision that is uh, oriented towards Christian experience, oriented towards the church, oriented towards missions and evangelism, obviously, which Fuller um, helps to, um, you know, develop, uh, which, which we could talk about in terms of the modern missions movement. Um, and, you know, evangelists, you know, I mentioned Graham and, you know, some people may bristle down. Graham's not a theologian. Well, you know, we can, we can critique some of Graham's method and we can, uh, you know, quibble about that. But at the same time, uh, that's not something to be, again, not something to be ashamed of that, like the people that, Mark the Baptist movement are primarily pastors, evangelists, missionaries, and activists. Oh, uh, I, I guarantee you, while Graham may not be a capital T theologian, if you think about some of the topics he's written on, like assurance of salvation or even angels and demons, things like that, I guarantee you he shaped how far more Baptists think about those theological issues 
than anybody who is a capital T theologian. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think also it's worth noting that despite the absence of, like you said, a, a lot of constructive theology, the influence of credo-baptism, the influence of religious liberty on other traditions and denominations is, is undeniable. So, I mean, the, and those, those are rooted in the exegetical theology of figures like Andrew Fuller. So yeah. in a way, they have a very outsized influence from what we would expect, um, even beyond yeah. the borders, well beyond the borders of just the Baptist tradition. So, yeah. yeah. And so having said all that, I do think now is the time, right, for, the, for, our, for our movement to mature uh, into some more serious dogmatic theology. So I don't, I don't think that we should um, diminish that either, you know, but, but I think there's some reasons why we haven't uh, had that same kind of uh, list of, of theologians. Yeah. But as we come uh, back to, to Fuller in this particular work, um, I, I suppose this may be his most well-known work, the gospel worthy of all acceptation. Whenever, whenever I was compiling the list, uh, Dr. Michael Haken, one of our friends, uh, is, uh, he suggested, um, another one that we could have done, um, his, his work against Socinianism. Um, but I think this is probably the one that is, he's most well known for. Um, Nathan, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the background behind why this work, uh, was written. So the gospel worthy of all acceptation is the classic Baptist manifesto for evangelical Calvinism. And, uh, and, and now, evangelical Calvinism is just simply normal Calvinism among Baptists, if you will. And it's unusual to find somebody uh, who's a high Calvinist. And to be fair to Fuller, there was a season, uh, a long season prior to about a generation before Fuller, where evangelical Calvinism was normal Calvinism among Baptists. But he comes into this particular time period where there's a certain type of rationalism that influences uh, the way that not just Baptists, but many Calvinistic dissenters in England were thinking about these matters. And we look at it and we say, man, that's pretty fatalistic. And, uh, and that's what Fuller comes into. So he's actually not the first one to... Uh, to really get at this issue. He's kind of in the middle of the conversation and he becomes the most influential person. So Robert Hall Sr. is uh, really the first pastor theologian in those circles who begins to question aspects of high Calvinism. And uh, he questions specifically the idea of whether you have to have a warrant or a conviction that you're among the elect before you're free to uh, express belief in Jesus Christ. Uh, so in many ways, whereas uh, historically Calvinism has said, uh, you know that you're among the elect because you believe, uh, what the high Calvinists were saying is you need to know you are elect before you can believe. And, and not to do that would be, to pre would be uh, presumptuous. So Robert Hall Sr. comes along and he says, I don't see that in scripture. And, uh, and, and he borrows a little bit from Jonathan Edwards and he goes against that idea of a warrant. And then he's kind of the older pastor in the Northamptonshire Baptist Association who Andrew Fuller's being influenced by. He's listening to him. He appreciates his preaching. He appreciates his quality of ministry. He introduces Fuller and a number of his friends to the writing of Jonathan Edwards. So then Fuller takes the next step. And he says, not only as an individual, do you not need to have a warrant that you're among the elect to believe, but as a preacher of the gospel or as an evangelist, 
you don't have to be thinking about the doctrine of election whenever you proclaim uh, the gospel and call upon men and women to believe. Uh, He's not denying the doctrine of election. He's staunchly Calvinist. Uh, But in some ways, if I can simplify this a little bit, he's saying leave the electing up to God. What you do is indiscriminately, in fact, he would have used the phrase promiscuously, promiscuously preach the gospel to all people, uh, trust that the Lord is going to save those whom he has determined to save. And so he applies that to personal evangelism or to public evangelism. William Carey then comes along, Fuller's good friend. He agrees with the warrant, he ag- or with the idea against the warrant. He agrees with the free offer of the gospel to all people. He applies those arguments to cross-cultural evangelism and to global missions and says, well, if this is true, when Andrew Fuller stands in the pulpit and calls upon everybody in the audience who's not a believer to repent and believe, then it's also true if we go to a different culture and we're sharing the gospel with those who've never had any exposure to it. And and that becomes the first theological fuel, if you will, for what becomes a missionary awakening, not just among the Baptists, uh, but among many evangelicals in the English-speaking world. So for Fuller, the big question is, is there anything about election or predestination or the atonement that would prevent me from sharing the gospel with everybody and calling upon all people to repent and believe? And he searches the scriptures and says, I don't think so. And I don't think I have to abandon my commitment to the doctrines of grace to be fervent and passionate in my uh, evangelistic endeavors. Tell us a little bit more about the um, the opponents that are kind of in the background of this work as well, and and actually in, in the background of his other writings, or uh, if you want to bring those in as well. Well, with high Calvinism, or let, let me just say even maybe more so than high Calvinism, with his arguments about the gospel and evangelism, uh, he finds himself in this classic situation where he has opponents on two different sides. So obviously the high Calvinists read this and they say, this isn't really Calvinism. He sounds like an Arminian. Mm -hmm. He's uh, not even really thinking about the doctrine of election as he's uh, proclaiming the gospel to people. But then the Arminians say, nice try, buddy. We appreciate that uh, that you're preaching the gospel to all people. We do that too, at least evangelical Arminians do. But you're still holding on to these terrible ideas like predestination and limited atonement, irresistible grace and whatnot. So he really feels like he's getting attacked from both sides. And uh, and all he's trying to do is articulate what he sincerely believes Scripture teaches first and foremost, but also what he thinks the vast majority of people in the Reformed tradition had believed until the day before yesterday in his context. And uh, he, he saw this in John Owen. He saw this in the other Puritans. He saw this in uh, John Bunyan and, and William Kiffin and Benjamin Keach and others who'd come before him. So in many ways, uh, he was doing resource mount work uh, as well as exegetical work uh, within his tradition and near traditions to try to make uh, the argument. So he's not only concerned, though, with the, uh, the high Calvinism soteriological question. Another major issue he's concerned about overlaps with it is the antinomian question. So not only is he going to argue with high Calvinists, not only is he going to argue with Arminians and and try to find what he thinks is a balanced biblical middle, but he's also going to grab this antinomian question 
And he's going to say one of the problems with high Calvinism is this fatalistic view of, uh, of obedience that's rooted in a bad understanding of the law. And so he's going to say, like classical Calvinism, that uh, the moral law continues to be binding in some way upon all believers, and it's not a uh, free from the law, a happy condition. That means I can go do whatever I want to do. I'm not saying that's what that hymn says, but you know, he's not saying that. He's saying, you know, no obedience is part of the uh, the Christian life, and an intellectual antinomianism, even if it's not intended to do this often leads to profligate living as that translates into uh, preaching and discipleship and spiritual formation. So he's also going to tackle the antinomians, and he's going to see that as uh, being one of the negative pastoral implications of the form of high Calvinism that he's dealing with. There's a lot of other stuff, too. He tackles the uh, deists of his era. He goes after the Socinians. They were kind of the Unitarians. Uh, of that day. He goes after universalism. He goes after Sandemanianism. Wonderful name. I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. But, uh, but, but again, all of these sort of errors that were floating uh, in the air among Baptists and near contemporaries of Baptists, uh, with every one of those, he wants to, uh, to borrow from uh, politics. He wants to stand athwart history and you'll stop. Hmm. Say, no, we don't need these heterodoxies. Uh, let's go back to the scriptures in the best of our tradition and see a better way. Yeah, why don't why don't we uh, talk a little bit about Sandemanianism then? I know, I mean, Fuller, another one of Fuller's um, you know best known works is his strictures against Sandemanianism. Uh, but I think some of that, some of the the critique comes out here in his discussion of what true saving faith is, yeah. right? Uh, so tell us who who, who was Sandeman. Who are these people called Sandemanians? They're not. They're not Sandmen, right? They're not. They're not. But uh, but I've had many people make jokes over the years about Metallica's Inter Sandman or <laughs> something like that. So Sandemanianism is sort of my niche within Fuller studies that I've reflected the most on. So in the in the critical edition of the works of Andrew Fuller, I edited uh, the volume on strictures on Sandemanianism. So John Glass and his son-in-law Robert Sandeman were uh, Presbyterians originally who got caught up in uh, what we would call restorationism, uh, the idea that we should as much as possible ignore Christian tradition and try to restore the New Testament church. And, uh, and there's a lot about that instinct that can be helpful. Um, there's a lot about that instinct that's not helpful. It's kind of a mixed bag. And, uh, and for Glass and Sandeman, Sandemanianism comes from Robert Sandeman. <clears throat> the, uh, the key thing that they're arguing that becomes a massive point of contention for not just their own Presbyterian tradition, but that bleeds over into Baptists and Congregationalists as well, is this very intellectualist view of faith. Uh, saving faith it is simply believing the facts of the gospel. That's true. Jesus was that. He did that. This is what it means. And if you sincerely believe that, that is in fact saving faith. And adding anything to that, repentance, obedience, that's a work. And you're muddying justification by faith. 
So the Sandemanians are making that argument. And what Fuller comes along and does, and, and he's the most well-known evangelical, but not the only evangelical who does this, is he says they're only getting half of it right. Yes, you have to affirm the intellectual reality that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he says he did, but that in Scripture, uh, faith is both belief and repentance, and that both of those are a part of saving faith, and that repentance is not a work. Repentance is a part of faith. And if we divide repentance and faith, that leads to a couple of different major issues. For some, it leads to what Fuller would call demon faith. Uh, James chapter 2, those who, uh, you know, the, even the demons believe in Jesus and they tremble. What does that mean? They have intellectual assent to who Jesus is. They know who he is, but they don't believe, believe, if you will. So he says, you know, Sandemanianism can lead to that just having the facts right, but there's no inner transformation. He would also say it could lead to antinomianism, and it gets there in a different place than the more fatalistic, high Calvinist version of antinomianism. Instead, it's this overemphasis on the facts of the gospel might lead to people not caring about repentance and not caring about obedience. And so he sees Sandemanianism as a, uh, as a grave threat in his era. And one of the reasons I appreciate his work in this is because unlike high Calvinism that kind of ebbs and flows at different times and it's a spectrum and you don't see lots and lots of high Calvinism like throughout uh, Protestant or Baptist history, evangelical history, Sandemanianism under different names is the gift that keeps on giving. It's mm-hmm. really just his version of easy believism. Mm-hmm. People who raise their hand or they repeat a prayer or they say, yes, I believe that, but the Holy Spirit has not indwelled them. Mm-hmm. They've not, they're not born again. They're nominal, casual Christians or what my friend Dean and Sarah calls unsaved Christians. They check all the right boxes, but, uh, but, but the head and the heart, if you will, have not both been a part of uh, that decision to follow Jesus. And so there's so many things that he says about Sandemanianism that might have different theological roots in our own day, but, uh, but not always different theological roots. Mm-hmm. And then we're constantly combating the same sort of idea and having to remind people that uh, a relationship with Christ is not just believing certain things are true intellectually, but it is becoming a new creature in Christ mm. and following him from this life into the next life. And so I find the writings on Sandemanianism uh, to be very helpful in, uh, and very even pastoral in thinking mm. about how we deal with people today. Yeah, and it seems like, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, it seems like uh, on a lot of these issues that we've discussed in Fuller, he's, he's, he's trying to thread a needle, you know, um, like it's not, Arminianism, but it's not high Calvinism, right? On the question of the free offer of the gospel. Um, here, it's not uh, Sandemanianism, but it's also not Roman Catholicism, right? That would confuse faith and love, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's a proper understanding of true saving faith. And, you know, it, it, it's not to say that you do theology by a golden mean, right? It's not, we don't just, just you know, run the averages. But, it, but very often in theology, I think Fuller helpfully 
uh, guides us in this way. Theology is making distinctions between opposite errors that sometimes end up coming back around closer to each other, right? As he points yeah. out, that the opposite errors, uh, you know, kind of have some common ground um, on the extremes. But I think Fuller is just a, a helpful example of that kind of careful, nuanced, a very specific uh, thinker on these these various controversies. So, you know, I, I wrote an essay a couple of years ago on uh, on what theologians can learn from Andrew Fuller. And I, I talked about three different things that that not just Fuller in particular, but kind of the Fuller right early evangelical Calvinism tradition reminds us of, even if one does not consider themselves a Calvinist. Uh, one of them is the importance of uh, the gospel in all of theology. And in some ways, uh, the gospel was at the very center of his theology. I don't know that he would appreciate the language of gospel-centered. I think we've kind of turned that into a shibboleth. Uh, but there's no doubt that the saving work of Christ was at the heart of what he was doing, and it was affecting all of his theological reflection. And then the second sort of idea is uh, that for Fuller, and I think for the best of the Baptist tradition, scripture trumps system. He appreciates system. He refers to systems. He's learned from different theological systems, but those systems are always interrogated by the scriptures. And whenever the system hits up against the scriptures, the scripture revises the system, not the system revising the scripture. And I think there's something very healthy about that instinct. And then the third is the relationship between sound theology and, and the Great Commission. Uh, God's command for global disciple making. And, uh, and I think those three different gestures, it's not golden mean, it's not running the average, but those three Fullerite instincts help to keep us grounded as Baptist theologians. Again, even if we disagree with what Fuller says about predestination or about the atonement or whatever the case might be. Yeah, that's a great model. Um, so, so we've talked about his opponents. What about the influences? I mean, we, as you read through this work, you know, we see references to Gill and Owen. What, what, how do they shape his thinking? Uh, you've spoken a little bit to that, but are, are there other influences as well? The key influences uh, beyond scripture itself uh, would be John Gill, though he has a critical relationship with Gill. He also has inherited much about Gill. Little bit of John Calvin, though again, very similarly, uh, more so than those two, uh, John Bunyan and John Owen. Now, all four of those individuals, it can be debated to what degree he's appropriating them and to what degree he's not. Uh, the John Gill, excuse me, the John Owen one is especially controversial. Uh, Carl Truman has argued, I think, persuasively that in some ways uh, Fuller remakes Gill in his image and, and makes Gill sound like, excuse me, Owen makes Owen sound like a Fullerite. I think there's something to that. But, uh, but it's no doubt that those are sort of the four different, that's his, uh, um, I'm losing it, the mountain with the president's face. Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. Yeah. That's his Mount Rushmore of kind of reformed theologians that he's using as dialogue partners as he's engaging with the scripture. And I think of those, it's probably the case that Gill influences him the most. I think that that's kind of his default factory setting theologically. And what he's doing is correcting some errors that he perceives in Gill 
through dialogue with those older reformed theologians, as well as Jonathan Edwards looming above all of that. I should have said that. Yeah. But I'm thinking about people more in the past. Uh, right. We can talk about Jonathan Edwards for a long time. He's by far the single most influential person for uh, for Gill and looms in the bad for Fuller and looms in the background of everything. Yeah, yeah. He mentions that in in his in his introductory chapter the the influence of well the diary of of David Brainerd, um, you know, written by by Edwards, but then also the discourse on the freedom of the will, and especially the distinction between natural and spiritual ability, um, which I think is actually really central to the argument that he yes. develops here, right? So why don't you talk a little bit about, about what um, Fuller is doing with that distinction? It is. So he draws upon some ideas in Jonathan Edwards, and, and Edwards doesn't say it exactly like this, and so this is kind of Fuller's appropriation of Edwards, but uh, Fuller's going to make an Edwardsian distinction between moral and natural ability. And what he said is uh, all people are uh, who are uh, fully rational, if you will, fully developed. So, I mean, I mean, he's not talking about infants. He's not talking about those who are severely developmentally challenged. But as a general rule, all people are naturally able to believe the gospel. And so in that sense, Believing in Jesus is like any other decision. You just believe. There's another sense, though, in which all people, because of the corrupting power of sin, are morally incapable of believing the gospel. Uh, they are in their hearts dead in their sin. They are rebelling against God and his commands, even if they would not articulate it that way or realize that's what they're doing. And so the upshot is for Fuller. Uh, there's a sense in which anybody could believe, and there is another sense in which only the elect will believe. And whenever we are proclaiming the gospel, we're leaning into that everybody, because that's what we've been commanded to do. Even though we know theologically that the Lord is only going to work among the somebodies, we lean into the everybody's, and we trust him to save the somebodies. And so that is a, a key distinction for him. And again, that's not exactly how Edwards uses that language and applies it, but uh, but Fuller and his friends grab a hold of it, and they see it as a uh, very relevant tool to bring to bear upon the debates about hyper-Calvinism and the free offer of the gospel. Hmm. The other important distinction he makes early on, and you, you've already touched on this, um, Bit, but maybe you have something to add to it. The distinction between faith in the gospel versus the consolation or assurance that accompanies yeah. the gospel. Is there anything more you want to say to that? And, and also, by the way, if there are particular passages in this work that, that you, you think would be really good to draw attention to for our readers, feel free to do that as well. Well, I don't have it right here in front of me, so I'm going to talk a little more generally than looking at passages. But in the case of uh, in the case of the faith assurance, this is actually a crucial issue that arrives with the modern evangelical movement. So there's this big debate about when evangelicalism begins. David Bevington argues, I think mostly correctly, that modern evangelicalism is a new movement that arises in the 1720s and 1730s in response to what we would now look back and call uh, the evangelical awakening in England and the first great awakening in uh, the American colonies. Uh, 
certainly in continuity with earlier Protestant traditions, but there are some key points of discontinuity that sort of lead to evangelicalism. A key point of discontinuity is the idea that it is normal for Christians to have assurance of their salvation and for that assurance to normally closely follow a conversion experience. So if we go back to the Puritans, or if we go back to evangelical-ish Arminians uh, in the 1600s, they all wrestle with this, and they're all trying to figure out how to have assurance of salvation and, and whatnot. And, uh, and what evangelical Calvinists and Arminians say as a general rule is we always need to be careful about presumption. We need to make our calling and election, election sure, but it is normal for someone who has believed to assume that they are in fact reconciled with God and going to go to heaven unless evidence develops demonstrating that something was wrong with that profession and, and they're drifting or renouncing or whatever the case might be. So that's out there just in the ether uh, for a generation as Fuller comes along. And, uh, and, and he argues about that in a number of his works, but as well as Sandemanianism, uh, he doesn't want people to have faith in faith, and, uh, and he doesn't want people to be presumptuous about assurance. But what he's saying is whenever uh, we have this thick biblical view of faith, which includes both intellect and repentance uh, as two, two sides of the same coin, if you will, that when that happens, it ought to be normal to have assurance of salvation and not to wrestle with, did you believe things the right way? Or is your sin going to cause you to, uh, to lose favor with God? And, uh, and he would say no, that a right view of faith leads to a right view of assurance that avoids the, that avoids the Scylla and Charybdis, if you will, of having no assurance and chasing after that, like sometimes happened in the past, or on the other hand, having a presumptuous sort of assurance that's, well, I checked these boxes or I took these steps, and that means that I'm going to go to heaven when I die, no matter what happens. Mm. Another theological issue that um, is debated in Fuller's work here and in his broader writings is his understanding of the atonement. Um, what would you say about his? model of the atonement um and then the big question of is fuller a proponent of limited atonement universal atonement and that's a huge question but what, what, well it what? is it is a huge question i love it that that's the one we're asking with just a few minutes left so <laughs> it could be a whole conversation um so let me say a couple things first of all there is no agreement among scholars to these questions so, uh, so no matter what I say, I'll get emails about it. And I can even tell you who I'll get emails from, but I'm not. But, uh, but here's for me, here's where I position myself, and this affects how I influence, how I interpret Fuller. So I see Fuller as very much Edwardsian theology as the air he breathes. That is primarily Jonathan Edwards. It is secondarily second-generation Edwardsians, the, uh, the so-called new divinity men. He's a contemporary of people like Samuel Hopkins and Joseph Bellamy and Jonathan Edwards Jr. in, uh, in North America. Fuller revises his views of the atonement in response to Arminians 
uh, after he writes the gospel worthy of all acceptation. The only argument that they make that he finds partially persuasive is that a strictly limited atonement is inconsistent with the free offer of the gospel. He would have had an Owenist, Gilite type understanding of limited atonement, where uh, sometimes it's called commercial uh, by some theologians. I don't know if that's the best terminology, but uh, but but he very much would have had uh, that sort of classical understanding. What happens is between 1785, the first edition of Gospel Worthy, and 1801, the revised edition, he modifies his view of the atonement. The way I would say this is he still affirms there is a limited intention in the atonement. It is only going to save the elect, but he affirms a general provision in the atonement. Jesus's atonement is as such that if everybody believed, everybody would be saved. Now, he's not an Amaraldian because he has a completely different understanding of the covenants. He's not exactly where Dort is, though some of that language echoes Dort. Some argue that he adopts, uh, that he abandons penal substitution and embraces a governmental theory. Uh, Stephen Holmes has made that case, among many others. I don't think that's the case. He still uses penal language, but what I think he's doing is he's trying to integrate that new divinity moral government understanding with traditional reform penal substitution, hearing the critiques that are coming from those who hold to an old-fashioned general atonement, And in some ways, he ends up with this unique view of the atonement that's not strictly limited atonement, but it's not general atonement like we think of either. In some ways, uh, I describe it as a depersonalized understanding of the atonement. Jesus dies for sinners in general, not every sinner in the same way. He dies for sinners in general. But part of that is also securing the salvation of the elect. Hmm. So whether he's a four-pointer or a five-pointer, I've wrestled with that. I tend to say he's a four-pointer, and it's a version of four-point Calvinism. Michael Haken and others would disagree with me. They would disagree with half of what I just said. (laughs) But I think that there are Edwardsian reasons that he gravitates in that direction. And so I don't think he holds to a, uh, a limited atonement even though he doesn't say the same things that Arminians say about a general atonement. And I think that there are some tensions, maybe even contradictions in his view of the atonement that get worked out by later folks who either just embrace four-point Calvinism or who continue to hold to kind of a 1785 version of evangelical Calvinism and just reject that Arminian critique and say, no, you can totally hold to an, Owen, an Owenist account of the atonement and preach the free offer. Uh, Fuller doesn't fit neatly in either of those places because he's really wrestling with uh, both that pastoral question about evangelism and the theological debates that are going on about the atonement and how best to think about the atonement during his time period. I'm not sure how many people believe about the atonement exactly what Fuller believed. Mm -hmm. As much as people are inspired by Fuller 
to either be four-point modified or moderate Calvinists or five-point Calvinists who are very evangelistic. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. And we'll, we'll do you a favor and just uh, tell our listeners to direct emails to lukestamps at yeah. yeah. Um, so, so with our final few minutes here, I, I just have two questions for you. And if we only have time for one, you can pick which one you want to answer. You mentioned the Fuller as a model for theologians. Uh, the first question is, how, how is he a model for pastors? What, what's the lesson that we can draw from him today? The second question, uh, far more important, is uh, who will the Atlanta Braves beat in the World Series this season? So which I, would, I would love to address both of these questions. So I think what Fuller reminds especially Baptist pastors of is that uh, being an evangelist, being a promoter of the Great Commission, being a careful theologian, being a preacher, being an apologist, even though he didn't use the phrase apologetics in the same way we did, he was doing that sort of thing, that all of that is part of pastoral ministry. Hmm. And we sometimes artificially divide those different tasks. And it is the case for Fuller and everybody that every pastor is better at some of those things than others. Some of them, they're very gifted at. Others are muscles that need to be exercised. But faithful pastors are willing to do all of those things in the defense and proclamation of the gospel and the building up of Christ's people. And so what I like to point to Fuller most as is, is, is as a great commission pastor theologian. I'm being very prescriptive now and not descriptive. I'm being a bad historian. I want to see the Southern Baptist Convention and other Baptists and all evangelicals characterized by uh, a generation of pastors who are great commissioned pastor theologians and whatever that looks like in their context. And you don't have to agree with everything that Fuller says to be that, but that Fullerite spirit, I want to see influence uh, my tradition and everybody else for the glory of God and for the sake of uh, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Amen. Uh, the Braves are going to beat the Yankees. People are going to talk about the Yankees all year long. They're going to win a record number of games. Aaron Judge is going to strut into the World Series, and it's going to be the revenge for the 1990s. Derek Jeter's gone. Our long national nightmare is over. The Braves are going to vanquish the Yankees, and then Jesus Christ is coming back. I can, I can taste it. Amen. <laughs> well, Dr. Finn, thank you so much for joining us for uh, today's conversation, and uh, thank you to our listeners. We'll see you next time. Thanks. It's my great pleasure. Appreciate both of you guys. Thanks.